Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. Today's show is sponsored by Audible, the home of over 150,000 audiobooks. To get a free, yes, free audiobook, go to audibletrial.com forward slash queens and go find yourself something awesome to listen to today. This time, I'm going to go back to the realm of popular fiction and recommend The Summer Queen by Elizabeth Chadwick. This book is the first of a series of historical fiction books on the life of Eleanor of Aquitaine, and, as you would expect, it's full of love, lust and intrigue. And it's free when you sign up for a free trial membership at audibletrial.com forward slash queens. And better yet, by doing so, you'll be showing your support for the Queens of England podcast. Before I start this week, I believe I owe you all an apology. I had intended to release this episode on time, but the last three weeks have been some of the most hectic in my life. I've had a very complicated house move and other various boring personal business that I won't trouble you with to attend to, and so the podcast had to take the fall. I hope that the next episode will go out in a week and a half, and then normal service will be resumed. I'm very, very sorry. I'll try not to let it happen again. Now, back to this very belated show. And welcome to the Queens of England podcast. Episode 9, Eleanor of Aquitaine, A Queen in Revolt. At the end of the last episode, we left Eleanor of Aquitaine just after her return from the Holy Land. She may have been about to give birth to her second child, but relations with her husband, Louis, were pretty appalling. If it hadn't been for the Pope's remarkable talents as a marriage counsellor, they probably would have divorced before they had even returned to France. Any such rapprochement, though, ended soon after they got home. Her husband's terrible leadership on crusade had sunk her estimations of him through the floor, but to his subjects, he had returned home a hero. Despite its undeniable failure to achieve anything whatsoever, The very fact that he had gone on such a perilous journey in the service of God was enough to win over the very same churchman that had hated him only two years before. Louis was the new golden boy of France, quite the turnaround for a man who had failed pretty spectacularly so far as a king, as a soldier, and as a husband. Now, if you remember from two episodes back, this was the time that Matilda of Boulogne came to visit Louis and persuade him to attack the Angevin armies of Geoffrey of Anjou and his wife, the Empress Matilda. The Angevins had failed to win England for their countess, but had managed to create a huge power base in northern and eastern France, and a rising star in their army was Matilda and Geoffrey's son, Henry Fitzempress, who had just been named Duke of Normandy by his mother. 
Louis' campaign against the Angevins, though, was yet another military failure to add to his list. The man really was a complete disaster when it came to war. Louis quickly sued for peace, and negotiations for this had a very unexpected consequence. The man that came to negotiate this peace was Henry Fitzempress, who visited the court in late 1151, and it is there that he met Eleanor. Sadly, we don't know anything about what actually happened at their meeting, though many novelists have produced very passionate scenes. What seems certain, though, is that they started to plot a sensational new partnership, a marriage that would rip up the diplomatic map of Europe. Another big event in 1151 was the death of the great churchman and statesman Suger of Saint-Denis. He had been pretty much all that had been keeping the royal couple together, and now that he was dead, they set about arranging their annulment. As I said last time, many historians can get very carried away with accusations of adultery and incest, but the most important reason for the annulment of Louis and Eleanor's marriage was the fact that, 15 years into their marriage, Eleanor had not produced a son. French kings had a history of ending sonless marriages in the 12th century, and it seems that Louis was cut from the same cloth. It certainly wasn't over any real concern over consanguinity. Indeed, Louis' second wife, Constance of Castile, was related in even closer degrees than he had been with Eleanor. Dynastic concerns would always trump personal considerations. This is the Middle Ages, not a Victorian novel. In March 1152, a council of bishops was called by Louis, and they gave the verdict that was required. What is interesting here is that unlike in the Holy Land, when Louis was the roadblock to annulling the marriage, here he joined her in the driver's seat. He was as keen as Eleanor to end it all, and so in many ways this was a fairly amicable split. There were no charges of adultery, it was purely annulled on the grounds of consanguinity, but their daughters were declared legitimate as their marriage had been made in good faith. Crucially though, both parties retained all of their lands, which means that Eleanor took back from the French crown the rich and wealthy duchy of Aquitaine. Louis would soon come to rue this mistake. The ink barely dry on the annulment of her first marriage, Eleanor rushed off for phase two of her plan. Time was very much of the essence. The duchy of Aquitaine was up for grabs to any fortune hunter who could capture the former queen and force her to marry him, and without the protection of her ex-husband, her journey to Henry's side was very perilous. The first man to make a play was Theobald of Blois, but she escaped him on a boat of Tours, but then was almost trapped by Henry's younger brother, Geoffrey of Anjou, who had clearly not read the script. Again, though, she escaped, and eventually made it back to the safety of Poitiers, where she called for Henry. In May of that year, only eight weeks after her divorce from Louis, she and Henry wed in secret. British chroniclers William of Newborough and Gerald of Wales both state that this had been the plan all along, with Gerald stating that Henry had, quote, basely stole Queen Eleanor from his liege lord. This was definitely not what Louis had in mind when he had divorced his wife. The 28-year-old Eleanor was now married to the impetuous, fiery-haired 19-year-old heir to the English throne. The contrast between her two husbands could not have been more stark. Where Louis was a pious man, hopeless at generaling, Henry was a natural, charismatic leader and an excellent soldier. And soon, he would become a king. In 1153, shortly after being officially recognised as the heir to the English crown, Henry learned that King Stephen had died. On the 19th of September, Henry was crowned as the new and undisputed-ish King of England, and his blushing bride, Eleanor, was anointed as his queen. What a difference a couple of years made. With Henry's coronation, a new superpower in Europe was born. Later historians have called this the Angevin Empire, and it truly was a scary prospect for the other powers of Europe. 
I've put a map of it in the show notes, which you can find at thequeensofenglandpodcast.com. It united Henry's realms of England, Normandy and Anjou, with Eleanor's vast land holdings in southwestern France. Its stretch broken only by the English Channel from the Pyrenees to Hadrian's Wall. Pretty much half of modern France was now under the control of the English crown, and barely a sword had been drawn. With the annulment of his marriage, Louis had cut the head off the Hydra, only to find two more in its place. The kingdom of the French was now dwarfed. To add insult to injury, after only giving her first husband daughters, she quickly started to produce son after son for her new husband. Before she had even been crowned as queen, she had given birth to William, and then in successive years, she gave birth to Henry, Matilda, Richard, and Geoffrey. Then the pace slowed a tad, and she only gave birth to three more in the next nine years, two daughters named Eleanor and Joanna, and then a final son, John. As we all know, the primary imperative of being a queen was to produce heirs, and if giving her husband four sons wasn't successful queening, then I don't know what is. Unsurprising, with almost constant pregnancy, Eleanor was not an enormously active queen on the political stage in the first 13 years of her reign. The strains of childbearing and childrearing and then childbearing again took their toll on the queen, but much like she had faced when Queen of the French, she also had to deal with an overbearing mother-in-law. The Empress Matilda was still very much alive, and her long experience on the political stage had made her an invaluable asset for her son Henry. I'm going to talk a little more about the Empress, hopefully in a supplemental, but suffice it to say that she was not overly keen on relinquishing any power to her daughter-in-law. There was barely any space for one woman at the apex of political power, not two, and Matilda made sure that Eleanor didn't occupy any of it. Other than childbirth, her other main role in this period was in courtly appearances. In an era without newspapers and the nightly news, the best way to show your face to your subjects was to physically go and see them, and so Henry and Eleanor spent a goodly amount of time on the road. French historian Edmund René Le Bon put it this way, quote, Summer and winter, crossing and recrossing the channel, almost always expecting the other child, here she is, severely reduced to the strictest obligation of a feudal queen. Other than the duty to provide numerous offspring for her husband, she must be present everywhere, showing herself to her vassals at the plenary courts of Christmas or Easter, riding, sailing, riding again. In 1167, though, everything changed, when the Empress Matilda finally died at the ripe old age of 65. She'd had a very good innings, but now it was Eleanor's turn. The Angevin Empire, as I have said, was huge, and was also very culturally and politically diverse. Ruling it all from one central place was impossible, hence why Henry and Eleanor were constantly on the move. But in 1168, they went back to the tried and tested method of governing a two-part realm, but with one key difference. William the Conqueror, Henry I and Stephen I had left their wives in charge of one part of their realm while they fought wars in the other, much like Henry was about to do with Eleanor. But for them, giving power to their wives was not so much about dual governments, more about dealing with an emergency as best they could. This was different, as it was an arrangement made in peacetime, or as close to peacetime as the Middle Ages could get. The reason for this big difference is that Eleanor was Duchess of a huge and important territory, and although Henry ruled it in a nure exoris, he could never do it as effectively as his wife could. So, Eleanor left Henry's side and travelled to her homeland of Aquitaine to rule in her husband's name. Details are, as per usual, sketchy, but it seems that she exercised a degree of independent power here in excess of what her predecessors had done in peacetime. She convened courts, made legal judgments, settled disputes. She ruled like a man, 
but crucially, she was doing so in Henry's name, and that made all the difference. This was a tremendous vote of confidence in his wife by Henry, and as we will see, it was a rare piece of delegation. It would also be one, though, that he would later regret. Most writers of the period, though, weren't much interested in all of this political nonsense. What they focus on is the courtly culture at Poitiers. Eleanor is said to have run her court much like her grandfather had done. It has become known as the Court of Love, and it was full of troubadours singing songs of noblemen using their great hearts and noble chivalry to chase after unobtainable ladies. One chronicler from Poitiers lamenting the Queen's absence from the court wrote, quote, Once tender and delicate, you enjoyed a total freedom. You abounded with the riches. Young girls surrounded you, playing the tambourine and the hard-singing pleasant songs. Indeed, you enjoyed the sound of the organ, and you leapt to the beating of drums. One poem that is said to have emerged from this court, or at least one like it, is called De Amore, or About Love. In it, the poet asks questions like, can real love exist in a marriage, and whether adulterous love is superior to married love. These courts are portrayed exactly how Hollywood likes to imagine a medieval court. Men in armour, ladies beautified, chivalry everywhere. And while most historians think this is all just the invention of poets, it does at least serve to illustrate once more just how different the worlds of Eleanor and Henry were. Eleanor's time running Aquitaine was the high point of her time as queen, and by all accounts she was a very effective lieutenant for Henry. But alongside this, she was building up a personal base of loyal supporters from her homeland. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Allies who are about to become very important for her and her children. The king and queen had worked effectively as a team for the first part of their reign, but things were about to change. The problem, simply put, is that Eleanor was never going to be fully content with the role as a lieutenant for her husband. It just wasn't in her personality. Now some claim that everything that is about to happen next was caused by one person, Rosamond Clifford. Now, who the heck is Rosamond Clifford? Well, she was the rather fetching daughter of a minor Norman noble, and was brought up at Clifford Castle on the Welsh borders, and it is there that she is said to have met Henry II. 
Wales in this period was constantly up in revolt, and while suppressing yet another revolt, Henry stayed over at Clifford Castle. The two of them met and began their affair. This was not unusual. Kings had mistresses. This is considered the norm. Indeed, kings that did not have affairs were often thought as being a bit weird, or even homosexual by a lot of her contemporaries. Rosamund, though, does seem to have been a bit different. This was not some casual fling. Henry does seem to have had developed a real attachment for this young beauty. Sadly, though, this is all we know for sure. But that is all rather boring, so I shall now move on to salacious rumour and idle speculation, because that is always more fun. According to the gossips, Rosamund was the antithesis of Henry's bullish wife. Soft, kind, feminine, she is said to have enchanted the virile king. While having mistresses, as I said earlier, was not unusual, it was not considered proper to flaunt them to the whole court, and so Henry is said to have kept her her woodstock in Oxfordshire, where they would conduct their affair in the middle of a dense and complex maze, so as to keep their relations a secret from Eleanor. The story goes that the Queen, upon discovering the affair, went into full-on evil Disney Queen mode. In a fury, she went with her knights to Woodstock. Warned of her approach, Rosamund fled into the centre of the maze, the maze designed to protect her from Eleanor, but part of the thread of her dress got caught, and it led Eleanor to the trapped Rosamund. Rosamund was offered a choice, poison or a dagger to the heart. She chose the poison. Another story of Rosamund is that, far from being hidden away, she was flaunted in front of the court and was mocked for being a mistress, the king's whore. Gerald of Wales, a thoroughly unpleasant man, calls her Rosa Imundi, or the Rose of Unchastity. Distraught, she fled to a nunnery and it is there that she died. Whatever the story of Rosamund, the fact is that she has fascinated scholars and writers for centuries, yet it seems that what is about to occur had very little to do with Eleanor's perceived position as a jilted wife. Her match with Henry had little to do with love. It was all about power, and indeed her next moves were all about her ambition to gain power for herself and her sons. Now, let me just remind you of the names of all the people involved here, because there are a lot of names and it's hard to keep track. We have... Henry II, and Eleanor of Aquitaine, of course, and their four sons, who were, in order of birth, Henry, Richard, Geoffrey, and John. But you may ask, what about William? Well, William had died in 1156, leaving Henry the Young, as I will refer to him for reasons that will soon become apparent, as the eldest son. Succession to the English throne had been a messy business for a while, and pretty much every succession to the throne for a century had caused a messy civil war. Henry was keen to avoid this at all costs, and looked to France for the solution. If you remember from last time, the Capetian kings of the French crowned their heirs as junior kings during their own lifetimes, so as to give them some experience in rulership, and to bathe their heirs in royalness, making a rebellion over succession far less likely. Borrowing this idea from the French may well have come from Eleanor herself, who of course had been junior queen of the French for a few weeks between her marriage to Louis and the death of his father. This is backed up by William Marshall, who said that, quote, The decision was made by the council of the Queen, and all her entourage, for such was her duty. Crowning her son would make her both a Queen Consort and a Queen Mother, two positions that would combine to give her great influence. Eleanor was not present at the coronation of her son, as she was in France dealing with a certain turbulent priest, but one can only imagine that she was delighted. Having made this move to secure the succession, Henry and Eleanor then moved to their other sons. The experience of William the Conqueror's children showed that younger sons can kick up big trouble, and so there was a need to pay them off with titles of their own. 
Richard, by now 14 and allegedly Ellen's favourite, was named her successor as Duke of Aquitaine, though, crucially, Henry II would retain this title throughout his reign, Richard only being allowed to style himself as Count of Poitiers, a far lesser title. He was, though, given a very fancy investiture ceremony meant to mirror that of his brother Henry, but he must have been disappointed at not getting the title he craved. Her other two sons were too young to get titles yet, but they were growing up, and all of them were getting restless. The problem was, simply put, Henry II was a crappy delegator. He thought that simply giving his sons titles and promising them power in the future was enough, but it wasn't. They wanted power now, and Henry was not about to give it to them. Furthermore, Henry was fond of tinkering with succession strategy, and even started to mess with the independence of Aquitaine. Eleanor, being a proud Aquitanian, would not stand for this, and neither would her son and heir to Aquitaine, Richard. In 1169, Eleanor's husbands, current and ex, met a Murai and agreed to approve Richard's succession in Aquitaine and his betrothal to Alice, Louis's daughter by his new wife Constance. They also agreed to Geoffrey's betrothal to the daughter of the Count of Brittany, meaning that he would inherit that title after the Count's death. So, Henry the Young would be king, Richard would be Duke of Aquitaine, and Geoffrey, Duke of Brittany. But for Richard and Geoffrey, those titles were not yet theirs. But at least they had some lands. Henry the Young was given nothing, which meant that he had virtually no income at all. And then there was John. John was still just a boy and too young to be given anything, but there does seem to have been a disparity between Henry II and Eleanor on the boy's prospects. Eleanor seems to have thought there was little to be done for him unless some rich heiress could be found. There just wasn't enough land in the realm to go around. Henry, on the other hand, was very keen to find him something, and it is this that finally tipped things over the edge. A marriage match was made between John and the daughter of the Count of Maurienne. The Count asked the King what John could bring to this match, and Henry promised Chinon, Ludan, and Mirbeau. These were in his right to give, but they were castles promised to his son, Henry the Young. He had so little, and now his father would give these away without him even being consulted? That was the final straw. Foreseeing trouble, Henry left Richard and Geoffrey with Eleanor, giving her strict instructions not to let them out of her sight, and he kept Henry the Young close by to keep an eye on him personally. On the evening of the 5th of March 1173, however, Henry the Young escaped, sneaking out of Chinon Castle and rode with all haste to Paris to the court of the French king. This was an act of war, and an act of treason, and he knew it, but he wanted land, and titles, and felt that war was the only way to get them. Upon discovering his son's flight, Henry sent an urgent message to King Louis, demanding that he return his son. Louis put on his poker face and asked the envoys, Who sends this message to me? The King of England, came the reply. And then the coup de grace. Not so, Louis said. The King of England is here. And things were about to get much worse for Henry. Richard and Geoffrey joined their brother in Paris and they didn't need to escape under the cover of darkness as Henry the Young had done. Their mother had let them go willingly. She and her sons yearned for the autonomy to govern their own slices of the Angevin Empire. They had been made promises with regard to land and authority that had just not been fulfilled, and they felt that enough was enough. And then, the final twist of the knife. Eleanor, Henry's wife, set off to join her sons and ex-husband in rebellion against her current husband, and king. This was unprecedented. 
Never before had a queen raised her flags in rebellion against her husband. It was unthinkable. Even when her husband was fighting wars against her own family, the duty of a queen was to her husband. But, then again, never had there been a queen quite like Eleanor. The Archbishop of Rouen was one of many churchmen to write to Eleanor on the instructions of the king. He wrote, quote, Before events carry us to a dreadful conclusion, return with your sons to the husband whom you must obey, and with whom it is your duty to live. Bid your sons, we beg you, to be obedient and devoted to their father. Eleanor ignored him and everyone else, and set off to join her boys in Paris and be reunited with her ex after 20 years. She had barely got out of Poitiers, however, when, dressed in men's clothes in a vain attempt to avoid detection, she was captured by Henry's force. Without the support of their mother, and crucially that of her duchy, the rebellion had suffered a critical early blow. The brothers and Louis had, though, assembled a very impressive-looking coalition, including the King of Scots and the Counts of Flanders, Champagne, Blois and Boulogne. It was a hairy 18 months with some brutal siege warfare, especially in Normandy, but eventually stalemate forced everyone to the negotiating table. And it is here that Henry proved himself to be the master statesman and diplomat. He gave lands and castles to his sons, especially Richard, who was going to be given the responsibility of stamping out rebellion in Aquitaine, and on these campaigns he truly made his name as a soldier. Henry the Young was not given much more power, but he did get two more castles and land. One person, though, was not forgiven, and that was Eleanor. A son in rebellion against his father was a tragedy, but an understandable one. A wife against her husband? A woman against her lord and master? That was downright unnatural. After her capture, she was taken to England and placed under house arrest. She would not see her homeland or obtain her freedom for 15 years. Her departure was mourned by many in the duchy, including a poet called Richard, who wrote this. Quote, Daughter of Aquitaine, fair and fruitful vine, tell me, eagle with two heads, tell me, where were you when your eaglets, flying from their nest, dared to raise their talons against the king of the north wind? It was you, we learned, who urged them to rise against their father. That is why you have been ravished from your own country and carried away to a strange land. Your harp has changed into the voice of mourning, your flute sounds the note of affliction, and your songs are turned into sounds of lamentation. Reared with abundance of all delights, you had a taste for luxury and refinement, and enjoyed a royal liberty. Now, queen with two crowns, where is your court? Where are your guards? Where are the members of your family? Eagle of the broken alliance, you cry out unanswered, because it is the king of the north wind who holds you in captivity. But... Raise your voice like a trumpet, so that it may reach the ears of your sons. For the day is approaching when they shall deliver you, and then shall you come again to dwell in your native land. Next time, we will complete our trio of episodes about Eleanor by covering her time in captivity, and then her final years as Queen Mother to her sons Richard and John. Eleanor of Aquitaine may be down now, but she was very, very far from being out. For more on the Queens of England podcast, 
including show notes, bibliography, and an opportunity to donate to the show, please visit queensofenglandpodcast.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 